Good morning again. We are coming now to our uh, sermon. This is our third, uh, looking at the letter of James. And just a couple of reminders about James. It's a, it's a fairly short letter. Um, James speaks with different words, different vernacular. Uh, he's addressing different people, different problems than Paul and Peter. Um, a primary target audience that he has are religious people. In fact, in, this, in next week's discussion, the title will be, Is Your Religious Pure? And the reason is James brings up in verse 26 that uh, he's talking to people that would lean in and say, yes, yes, I'm religious. A lot of times in our modern era, that, doesn't, that word doesn't ring true. But for this audience, it was an audience who would have said, we are doing the right things mostly. And yet, much of his letter highlights problems in their faith. And I think what we find is a real opportunity to lean into the glorious nature of the gospel, to understand how we can grow. So what we've been doing is we've been talking in our last two discussions on, the, on verses 1 to 18 about how trials actually are the very way we grow. They're not the things that get in the way. They're the ways we actually improve and grow. So he says we should actually look for, if you will, find, uh, embrace with joy things that are hard because they reveal places for us to grow. The first week was a shorter sermon. I titled that The Way Up is the Way Down, or however you want to phrase that. But the idea that exaltation comes through difficulty, through trials, external things that create internal challenges. Uh, last week, we, we used the same text, and the title was, The Gospel Answers Every Problem. And again, highlighting the fact that our job in this life, in the cleft that is Jesus, is to, is to move through the problems of this world in the hope of the gospel. And it's in doing that over and over and over that grows you and I. And so this week, we're going to keep that topic going but we're going to pick up at verse 19. And what we're going to find is this. Um, trials, another word you might want to use are stressors. I think too often that word connotes large-scale problems. And of course it includes those. Health issues, grave financial issues, uh, death and mourning and grief. But we need to understand that it's, it's in the little things, the little trials, the things that are almost imperceptible where we actually are trained for the larger problems that will possibly come. And, and the reason I say that is that the actual sin patterns and issues James will deal with, you might call respectable sins, partiality, sins of the tongue, things that we sort of shrug at and say, well, if that's as bad as you're dealing with, you're doing pretty good. And he's saying you're not doing well. Because what he will argue, what, he's, what, he's, what we're going to find is that so often what we do when we face a stressor is we respond much like Adam and Eve in the garden through blame. Blame of God, blame of others. We feel shame. They felt immediate shame when they turned to themselves. Uh, they were naked and now they were ashamed of that. And we're going to really pick up on that concept as we go forward. So what James is now going to be doing, starting in verse 19, is continuing his initial statement to pray for wisdom. 
And so we're going to see when he says, when trials come, meet them with joy, pray for wisdom. That's the first several verses. And now in verse 19, hear what he has to say. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you have called us as your children. You have implanted yourself through your spirit inside of us. You have given scripture uh, written by the Holy Spirit, by you. And you've given us your spirit by which we can now access your scripture. We praise you. And right now I pray, Lord, that whatever words, whatever challenges, I I pray that those at home would lean in and be hearers of the word this morning, recognizing that temptation to become distracted, maybe certain words in the passage set off trigger points. I pray they would lean in, knowing that you are our source of rescue. Amen. Safety is a real need. Uh, We long for safety. Um, Many, many um, modern neurobiologists even talk about how what happens when a stressor comes at us, something outside, is it triggers what they would call the autonomic nervous system. And you've heard of this, the fight or flight. And when you think about both fighting and flighting, those are those are really words of anger. Those are words of response, of I'm going, to re- I'm going to react to this problem. And so often it happens at places before our conscious mind is even engaged. And so before we know it, we can be reacting to something we haven't even paid attention to. And so often I think this is where much of our trials come from. Later in James, he says, what causes fights and quarrels? Is it not this, that you do not have, so you murder? Now, when the audience would hear that, when you and I hear that, we would say, I don't think so. The person just kind of made me angry or said something rude. But what he's getting us to do is pay attention to these early places where we were challenged for safety. All the way back in the garden, when the the serpent tells Eve, is God really going to do, you know, did he really say? And what it does is it makes you feel unsafe. We're designed to feel that God is safe. Now, as I say that, what has come to my mind is the beautiful language C.S. Lewis uses that seems to contradict this when he defines, when we first meet Aslan, the great Christ figure, he's coming, and we haven't met him yet, actually, and Mr. Beaver is having a conversation, and Lucy says, is he safe? 
And, and the beaver says famously, safe. Who said anything about safe? But he's the king. He's good. Now, what Lewis is doing, I think, is he's taking away a false notion of safety. A lot of times, our version of safety is tameness. It's ease. It's there's no problems. We're not going to have anything bad go wrong. But what he is saying is the true king is good. And really, you could then translate that with a footnote. He will bring you the actual safety you long for. And so what we're doing as we come to the book of James in this letter is we're trying to recapture these places where trials come and we turn to ourselves for false safety. That's our challenge. We turn to false things that we even know usually are not going to help us, but we do them anyway. And what we're being called to do is be quick to hear the Word of God, quick to come to it. So what, I, what we'll see this morning is the only resource we have for the safety that we long for is the implanted Word. That's the Spirit of Christ that dwells in us and His Scriptures. It's implanted in us. We'll talk about that. And because of that truth, we are now free to come with Him with every stressor, every thing, a trial, every source of shame we now bring to him. That's our challenge. That's our, that's our call. And we're going to see three things this requires. Three letter A's. The first is artistry. The second one is anger and understanding that. And finally, the understanding abiding. So our artistry. It's an interesting choice for a topic, but what I want us to do is remember there's an artistry to living out the Christian life. Um, we see in our passage uh, a continual theme in this first chapter of a desire to grow into godliness uh, in a way. that Let me give you the language. It begins in verse 4 when he says that steadfastness, when it has its full effect, will make you complete, perfect, lacking in nothing. In other words, you'll become that glorious structure we talked about. Later, when he picks that topic up again in verse 12, he says that steadfastness will, will lead you to the crown of life. In other words, true life will come to you. So whatever this word means, this concept, it's, it's a flowering. Flowering, uh, it's a hard word to say. And then in our passage, you see it in verse 20, interestingly said, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Righteousness, then, is not what you think. Uh, first of all, it's not you being a good little boy, never making a mistake. It's not boring. It's, not, it's, it's, it's glorious. Uh, to really get a full understanding, I think we have to look at the Old Testament. Again, as I've said, much of which is informing James and his theology, rightly. Psalm 23, we are told that the Lord is our shepherd. He, he takes us into green pastures and still waters, but he also, in, in the valley of the shadow of death with all of the problems, he sets a table before our enemies, and he anoints us with oil. This, this is a picture from the Psalms, and then the psalmist says, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. In other words, he makes us like him. He gives us artistry. Psalm 19 says this about the law. Now, in our passage, just to remind us, it's interesting. Not only does he say that in verse 20, um, 
excuse me, verse 20 about the anger does not produce the righteousness of God, implying that that should be our longing. That's what religious people should want, is to be, have the righteousness of God. But then later in verse 25, he says that we're to look into the perfect law, and he says the law of liberty. Uh, in our, in our, one of our quotes by R.C. Sproul, we see Sproul say, the Christian should be able to say with the psalmist, oh, how I love your law. And he said, he's quoting Psalm 19, the law of, well, or 119, but in our case, Psalm 19 says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. There is a law, and, and there's an artistry to law when you discover it. What keeps us from that discovering, we're going to talk later, but it's a sense that we can't fulfill it. That's the point. If we don't go to the rock of ages, Jesus, which we've been talking about, we will get stuck by using the law as a negative. It will become what binds us. And what we'll, ne- what we'll have to do is we'll have to reduce it to performable duty. Take driving. If I said, what's the law? You say the speed limit, go this speed limit, and you drive that speed limit, and you know you know. It's binary. Am I doing it? Am I not doing it? Am I going the speed limit? Am I going a little over, a little under? That's a negative view of the law. That's sort of the restrictive view. That's the minimal expectation. Have you ever pulled up to a a four-way stop and you wanted to turn right, but there's a person in front of you who wants to go straight? They could have chosen that left lane, but they didn't care. They got in that right lane and they just sit there. And you're going to wait three extra minutes to make your right turn. Again, that's fine. Maybe God wants you to have patience, all of that. But nonetheless, we're taught, when you're taught to drive, you should get into the center lane. Is that a law? Sort of. It's the law of love. It's the law that says, you know, if we are flourishing and we think about our neighbors as ourselves and love them, and I I don't even, right by my house, you turn right onto onto Highway 51 from Country Club, I'll pull up and think there's nobody behind me forever. I can get in the right lane and go straight. And, and then someone will always just finally find, get behind me and have to wait. And so right there you have just an example, a tiny example of what does it look like to have an artist's mind about the law, a, a view of, of productivity based on the freedom of the gospel. Now where am I getting that in our text? Uh, in verse 22, he doesn't just want you to hear the Bible, the word, and receive the implanted word and meekness, which we're going to talk about. But he wants us to be doers. And um, that word might trigger you, that concept. Are you a doer? Uh, people have used that language to harm people. And let me just tell you, when you look up the Greek of that word, it's so beautiful. Uh, it means primarily, um, that word in the Greek means to be a person who does something by making, by producing often attributed to a poet. James uses it here as uh, the only time it's used is by James in the Bible, in the Greek. But other Greek scholars, other Greek sources have used it for poetry and production of artistry. I think that's important because when somebody gets the gospel, if you will, when someone finally understands the love of Christ, you'll notice that what they do is different often than what the simple rendering of the law is. And we see this in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, you've heard it said, do not murder. I say, don't even call your brother a fool. Don't even be angry. Right? 
You've heard it said don't have enough adultery. I'm saying don't even lust. What's Jesus doing? He's saying there's artistry to the law. It's, it's flow- it never ends. It's infinite in its expression. Even at the end of our chapter, James will famously say that true religion is to love the orphan and the widow. And we're going to talk about this next week. And I think a lot of his audience would have said, we're with you, brother. We get that. We have a program in place at our church that takes care of orphans and widows, just like you taught us in the book of Acts. They, they might think that way. But then he goes into the sin of partiality. What's he doing? He's saying the principle that you are following to take care of a very obvious widows and orphans in that culture that are on a roll, and there's a distribution that should be happening. It's very regimented and obvious. That principle should apply artistically, poetically, gloriously to anybody that comes into your view whom you're tempted to overlook. We'll talk about that more next week. But you can hear, even in that, the gospel is so much bigger and it has so much more liberating ability than we've ever let it give, as long as we use it punitively. But when we come to God's glorious Scripture, which when we talk about law, primarily means all of Scripture and all of its critical points, what we are longing for is the wisdom to take the precepts of Scripture and apply them in real ways artistically in our lives. I, I, I don't want to go too long on this point, but remember, God made us in his image. And one of the first things he says to do is be fruitful and multiply. The creation mandate, go be my representative on the earth. Of course, that's before the fall. But even after the fall, after the ark of Noah, you know, the ark really does represent a type of Christ. They come through to a new world, and you have it repeated. Go be fruitful and multiply. So Christians, James calls us the first fruits to all the creatures. We are called to be the artisans of God by taking the law and applying it righteously in the world in which we live. Now, what gets in the way? He tells us anger. He says, know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Then he says, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. That's an interesting verse. We've just talked about righteousness of God as being someone who is a representative, who is, we're going to talk about abiding in a moment, but representing God by bringing his glory into every area of our lives, how we interact with people, our children, our businesses, whatever we do are driving. And he says, what gets in the way is anger. And this is a trigger word. We have a typical definition of anger that we might, if we're not careful, we'll miss. Because listen to the very next verse. He says, for, verse 20, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. 21, therefore, connecting the verses, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Now, the temptation would be to think, oh, okay, so I've got anger to deal with, but I've also got these other two things, wickedness and, and um, uh, what, what rampant wickedness and filthiness. So I've got these two other descriptors. What does that mean? Well, remember, for James, he's really processing what I'm going to use the term respectable sin. And what he's teaching is this, all sin 
the kind that you would never tell a soul, you try to forget that you commit yourself, prayerfully you repent of. Uh, but also there's sins that we engage in that we don't even think are wrong or we just don't care because so many people do them. We might call those respectable sins. Jerry Bridges wrote a book titled that way. And that's the sins that James begins to deal with next week in chapter 2 with partiality and, and showing favoritism. And then later, the, the tongue and how he just really lights us up with the reality that our tongues often reveal things. But he, the point is, what they are revealing is this root anger. Now, last week, we talked about how a trial becomes a temptation from noun to verb when our own flesh, our body, takes the, the situation and, and, and is lured to our own solution. And what we talked about, because in chapter 4 he picks that up by saying, do not be a friend of the world that is using worldly methods of partiality or, or the tongue or whatever version of sin you choose to deal with the stressors in your life, your fight or flight. You're, he says that's enmity with God. And so that's why when he says, let no one, when he is tempted, say, God is tempting me. His point is, it's our flesh and fallen response to a stressor, a trial, something that's not the way it's supposed to be, something that unsettles me, I feel unsafe. And what I do, if I'm going down the wrong road, is I select anger. And that leads to all sorts of wickedness. Now, here's how you can test it. Take a sheet of paper and write down, I'm, I really mean this, it's a really good assignment. It's going to be really hard to do. Take a sheet of paper, and this is a, a sheet, you're going to throw this away when you're done. It's going to be wadded up and shredded and, and gone. And write, list on, on, a, on a sheet, just start listing sins that you struggle, past, present, sins. Now, a good way to do that might even be to think about the seven deadly sins. As a, that doesn't come necessarily from Scripture, but based on Scripture, it's sort of a classic list. I'll read them to you, lust, gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, envy, pride. And think about each one and think, how does that manifest itself in your life, in the past and even in the present? If you were to make that list and you would come up with, let's say that mostly you'll come up with technicolor things, things you are ashamed of, but maybe not. Maybe you'll begin to actually find things you don't think are a big deal, like gluttony or greed or sloth. Maybe you'll realize, you know, I spend a ton of time like binge-watching things to avoid real stressors. Hmm? So what we'll find is we have this list of sins. Now, take that sheet and turn it over, and on the back, just write the word anger, colon, underline it, and then write the words fight or flight. And here's the trick. Pick a particular sin on the other side, any sin something that you're super embarrassed about, or something that our culture might say is no big deal. You can have three vacation homes, and, and, and you can squander your time however you want. Our culture doesn't mind that, so you struggle with that sin, whichever sin it is. And you'll, if you go back to its headwater, its source, you'll find that some place when you struggle with that sin pattern, you're seeking a solution to a stressful, trial-ish moment, trial-ish moment that you're seeking safety from. It's threatening your safety. So if you're someone who overspends, you're seeking comfort and what that gives you. If you're someone that is a miser with your money, you'll find that often it's not out of righteousness, but it's out of fear, you see, anger. 
Why do, you know, I'm, I'm afraid I won't have enough. I'm not safe. If, if the world worked the way it should, I wouldn't have this problem. And that's a type of blaming God. Now, what I would like us to know is that we say this in Christianity all the time. We say Jesus died for our sins, past, present, and future. And typically what we mean by that is at our legal justification, let's call that, just pick a date. Let's say it was in 1987, and, and on a certain day you prayed a prayer, and you believe that that was the day that the blood of Christ rescued you, and the Spirit of God came on you and applied to you the benefits of Christ. This is all true, and your sins are forgiven past, present, and future. There's a problem with that, and that is if we're not careful, we, we read that too grammatically. We forget that that means necessarily that freshly in the present, since there is no future or past, there's only the present when you think about what you're living in the moment, I'm tempted to sin, and the blood of Christ is available to me. Am I going to choose him, the implanted word, which is able to save my soul? Verse 21, or am I going to choose enmity with God? Those are my two choices. There's no neutral. The way James talks about that is double-mindedness and deception. Our passage this morning picks up the word deception. Uh, it'll pick up again next week. He begins by saying double-minded when we pray for you know, help or rescue or wisdom, but we don't really trust that he, his word is going to help us, so we choose our own methods and that takes us away what we're doing in that moment is we're being angry and we're fueling ourselves with that and the problem is especially with respectable sins the thing is it really seems to work and this is the challenge of this sermon for you this morning so many of the things that make us great are often fueled by anger some of our greatest accomplishments are actually fueled by our flesh. Paul says the very thing in Philippians 3. The things he considered his identity markers are rubbish. And, I, and, I th and an example of that, just to give an illustration, is one of my childhood heroes was uh, Michael Jordan. And um, watching every game I could, even the 1998 season from Japan, getting up at 2 a.m. and watching it live, and they wouldn't even cut to commercial, so you would keep hearing Bob Costas make jokes, etc. And uh, then they would come back to the game I've watched recently The Last Dance, which is really good on Netflix. If you like Michael Jordan or the Bulls from that era, re watch it. But what they make very clear, and he owns, is that what fueled him was hate. There's actually one quick funny story, not even funny, but they show a game where he didn't play so well and a rookie did play super well, and, uh, and it was a series, so they're going to play the next night. And so what he does is he, he fabricates a story about that person making a comment to him that he never made to fuel him with hatred so that the next night he would be a better performer and it worked. And it's funny because if you watch the series, they cut, now, how you keep saying it's funny, it's interesting, they cut to uh, a few of the, uh, re the, the reporters of the day and that kind of give their color commentary from the time and they all start to say, you know, he said he said this but we couldn't find a record of it. And then they cut to Michael Jordan, you know, present day, watching, he'll watch the videos and respond with the interviewer. And he says, yeah, he never said it. 
Never said it. And he's boasting in the fact that what he needed to do well was hatred. And that's a problem. That's a problem because a lot of our workaholism, a lot of our, our, our need to be a certain type of parent for success, uh, a, lot of our, um, a lot of the things we're known for, maybe, we, um, maybe we're known to be the one that talks about people all the time. And whatever we do, so much of it, the things we even kind of are proud of can be fueled out of the flesh. And so James is actually, when he says wickedness and filthiness, he's not talking about necessarily those sins that you would never want anyone to know about. He's actually priming the pump to show us we are actually needing not to, to we're needing to realize we're abiding we need to realize that we're living out of the flesh in so many areas because we're ignoring the stressors and the trials. So what do we do? We abide. We abide. Uh, the last thing we're going to talk about is abiding. And in our passage, it's not used in that language. I tried to find the letter A. But if you look at verse 21, C, I would call this the high point. He says, be quick to hear the word of God. And then he really picks it back up by the middle part of verse 21 when he says, receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. Now, remember the, the word, and later when I, I've also talked about the law of liberty, the, the word of God, the law of God is implanted in you now. Um, on Mount Sinai, um, Moses is in the cleft. God reveals himself as steadfast love and other, other descriptions. descriptions. And, and in that point, what we have is Moses is receiving the law after the rescue, after liberty. And the way the law came was in such a way that though it was prohibitive, the Ten Commandments, and then the, the ceremonial and the, and the civil laws that came out of the Ten Commandments, it was all predicated on redemption and rescue. Right? There's a sacrificial system that comes right with it. The, the assumption being you're not going to go out and like, achieve. We're not evaluating you. Rather, you're free to express it artistically because of the liberty that you've already received. Now, that's at the beginning of Israel. Toward the end of, the, of Israel in the way of the Old Testament, we have Jeremiah 31 famously prophesying where this is all going when he says... For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, Yahweh. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. What's he saying? That one day, someday, the law will come on you and in you, which happened, of course, at Pentecost in the Spirit, and when we become Christians, we receive that Spirit, and now the law is on my heart, written, and it's a law of liberty. It frees me, and I'm invited now to, because of the fact that I am no longer condemned, think of Romans 8, I now live out of the, of the law of the Spirit of life, Paul tells us, which has set me free from the law of sin and death. Now, the law gets a bad rap. The law isn't what condemns you. We're condemned because we are sinners. The law reveals that, right? Before the Ten Commandments, 
you already, they existed. You're already supposed to be perfect. In the garden, Adam and Eve are supposed to be perfect in righteousness. So what happens is when sin enters the world, necessarily heresy breeds orthodoxy. Laws have to, the, the God creates the ten laws to deal with how we're not loving our God and loving our neighbor. And so it looks prohibitive. But it's also, once you realize that you're free and you're loved and there's no harm that can be done to you and that your safety is secure and that the God is steadfast and that, that his word that's implanted, listen carefully, is able to save your soul, please hear me on this. That is not saying that one day, someday, if you fulfill this law, God will let you into heaven. That's not what he's teaching. What he's teaching is this. When a trial comes, a stressor, your safety is risked, you f- and you choose self, you're choosing death. Simple illustration is if you go out and decide to eat a pint of ice cream, this is a proverbial thing that people, right, you go get the pint of ice cream to, you know, soak your sorrows. What you're doing at one and the same moment is you're, you're trying to find comfort over a trial, yet knowingly you're harming yourself. And every attempt we make, whether it's using workaholism, uh, uh, our, maybe our shadows of our personality, things that, you know, we, with, maybe we take our wit and we harm people with our wit. Whatever it is, we're, we're trying to find life outside of God, the only source of saving your soul. And that's going to lead down that list from ver- the first 15, from temptation to desire to sin to death. And when there's patterns of that, you have entire patterns and regions of the structure of your life that are just shut off to the gospel. And that's a risk. So what is James saying to do? Abide. And I want to draw now to this, to this illustration we're going to close with. And that's the illustration of a mirror. The very title of the sermon, Are You Looking in the Mirror? Because he says, be a doer, that is a poet, an artist, a, a, someone who takes the gospel, the implanted word, and goes out into the world and doesn't just look at, at the word, but you go, perf- you go out and, and live it. Do that, he says. Don't be like a person. Now here's the example, who looks in a mirror, studies their face, and mirrors, by the way, were very prevalent, is metal, you can see, and then you forget what you look like, and when you go away. Now, if you just take, when we come to those kinds of things that are so in your face, it's so obvious, it's really a healthy thing when you read your Bible, to spend some time there. Don't just go, oh, I get it. Oh, I see. Paul's saying be like an athlete or be like a soldier or be like a farmer. Like, take those things and, and saturate in them. A mirror, can you, what happens, what would happen if I looked in the mirror and I went out and someone says, you didn't, and that, this happens to me sometimes, you, you missed a spot shaving or something. What I would tell you is I most likely did not look intently at the mirror. It's absurd to think I would look intently in a mirror, see a blemish, and go away as if I don't have a blemish. It's absurdity. What's happening is I'm actually not looking in the mirror. But secondly, and this is, I think, I think it's important to point out, it's a community issue. You see, if I go to the mirror, shave, brush my teeth, do whatever, and I miss something, maybe a piece of food or something, and I go to the living room, I start doing something else, and an hour later I go back to the bathroom and I realize the mistake, 
at the mirror, I don't feel any sense of shame or embarrassment because I didn't go out into the world. What creates the shame and the embarrassment is when someone else sees it, right? Because it shows that I've not, something's off with me. That's why you, when you see somebody with something out of place, you feel embarrassed. It creates like shame, like how do I tell them? Are they gonna, I, do I want to be the one that lets them know about, you know? Do I want to be their mirror? What is James teaching us? Ready? I'm going to say it like this, and I'm going, it's 36 minutes. We're going to finish in the next four minutes. Um, double-mindedness. When I, in the past, I've used the word boring, and, and some have been offended by that. I say boring Christianity. Let me, let me define my term. Boring Christianity, what I mean, is false Christianity. It, it's the Christianity where people are, they think they've got good theology, they have a pure religion, but when they look at the Scripture, they're like looking at a mirror and they're missing their flaws. They're, they're glossing over any of their problems. And what that produces are people who go out into the world and they sin with their tongue and they sin with their partiality and they sin with their, often with their gifts. They actually begin to use their gifts for harm. And there's always good reason. They know how to wield the law well and defend themselves because there's no meekness. And what James is saying is abiding, drawing near to the word, the implanted word, drawing near to the law of liberty means you're going to look at the scripture and you're going to bring yourself to it. One illustration I thought of to try to explain this. If I, it, how do I say it? We often have a resume running through our minds. So if you were to go sit down with someone and, and t- tell me about yourself, they'll tell you their resume, and it's usually the good things, right? And then if you were to say, tell me about your Christianity. I'm really interested in your religion. You, well, we believe, and you would start to say what you believe. I believe the Bible is the word of God. I believe the spirit dwells in me. Uh, I believe Jesus wants me to, be, to love my neighbor, and we'll have all these right things. Now, fast forward to several weeks later. Same two people are talking. That person who gave their resume is really bothered by something. Something's just gnawing at them. Something with life, something with stress, something whatever. And you say, now, a minute ago, like a while back, you gave me that resume. How is that informing this? And I mean, again, it's a setup, but I'm making this up on the fly. I'm not referring to a real situation. But often in my experience, a person will, will not connect the dots. What are you talking about? My roommate was a jerk. My wife said this to me. My husband did that to me. This is happening in our culture. This is going on right now. This, as if to suggest, there's two alternate realities. That's self-deception. That's double-mindedness. The things you're bothered by are what you bring to your religion. So when I open my Bible in the morning... And I turn to a psalm, like, to, like today, because I'm recording on Saturday, is Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. Ah, oh, that's the way it is, yes. You know when I read that? At 3 a.m., I couldn't sleep. I was filled with anxiety and stress. I thought, you know what, the only thing I have is Jesus, the implanted word. And so I read Psalm 23, and it comforted my soul. That's the way the Bible pops 
That's the way Christianity progresses. When I look into it as a mirror and it shows me places where I continue to live out of my flesh for myself. And it's in those times, in those places where the Bible gently, lovingly says, hey brother, hey sister, let me show you a better way. And that's really what I want to say about James in closing this morning, is he hasn't even named one particular sin yet. He waits a long time to finally get to where he wants to go by doing something completely backwards than I think what most evangelicals do. Most evangelicals see a sin pattern and they, they put that up front and then they feel awful and they make some form of a, a declaration that I will, I will strive to not do that thing anymore. I'm going to come up with a technique, a system, a plan. Uh, and it's not, those aren't all bad things, but what, they're, what we're neglecting is this, the kindness. It's kind for God to say, have you considered why you got angry? Have you considered what trial you were responding to that made you like, not want to ever be around that person again? Like, have you ever thought about, like, relationships that you sort of have moved away from and you just come up with these, you know, that, have you ever realized that maybe somewhere when you're around that person or have been with that person, they, they created feelings of shame for you? And so rather than identifying that and praying through that, you just sort of took your own action of removing them from your life. There are so many sin patterns that we engage in over and over because we're afraid to look in the mirror and abide with the implanted word, Jesus. Practically speaking, take your list, make one. I'll I'll tell you what, if you really want to be really ruthless, just look at yesterday. Take a sheet of paper and tick off the things from yesterday that you did. The ways you responded negatively, antsy, frustratedly to a person the things you did to disconnect, dissociate. Maybe the really bad things you did that you're ashamed of. Maybe your greatest thing. Look at the best thing you did and notice maybe the reason why you chose to do it. The question is this. Were you living out of the implanted word in meekness where he became your strength as an artist? And then I will say for many of us, yes. There were moments, yes. But what are those other moments where we weren't doing that? where we had the opportunity, a trial, a stressor popped up, and we had an opportunity to be an artist and solve that problem redemptively in Christ, and we chose a different route. We chose the route of self, which is anger toward God. Because those are the places where we get to joyfully, with joy, because we're hidden in the cleft that is Christ. And how that moment where I responded that way, show me where I could have first seen that. Teach me to pause and be slow to speak and slow to anger. And teach me in those moments when my body feels that way, certain feelings. I mean, the the Hebrew scriptures talk about the kidneys. The Greeks talk about the heart. But where these emotions create sinful anger responses, Lord, teach me to pay attention that I'm running from you. Teach me in those moments that I have an opportunity to right there, maybe through, through some meditating and prayer, apply your word and begin to name what's actually going on. Oh, I know what's happening is 
when that was said, I felt this, and it had nothing even to do with that person. But, and, and we can begin to just see these deep wounds healed by the gospel. That is the project you and I are on. And if you do not believe me, read the rest of James. It will take you just a few moments, and it won't take long, and you'll be cut to the core. The project of Christianity is not to go out and do these large clear law-keeping activities. It's to be an artist for Jesus, creating the world, recreating the world in his image through the expression of, of love, which is the center driving force that goes out and says, I am going to come to the hard places and I'm going to bring the balm of Gilead. I'm going to bring the, the healing ointment of Jesus that's implanted in me to bear in this. And it can be as simple as just the next time your, your toddler annoys you, that's your moment. The next time the school board annoys you, the next time a political figure annoys you, a Facebook friend annoys you, the next time any, your own heart annoys you, these are your chances. Run to Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I praise you for the book of James and for the way your gospel can come through this, this language that is so rich, that we, that we have you, Jesus, as our implanted word. Teach us to run to you, to be true hearers of the word, and then that means that we will naturally do your word. That is, we will long to recreate as actual poets for the Lord your righteousness around us. Lord, we know it's not easy, but that's the beauty because we're not doing it, you're doing it. We're not doing it on the basis of our righteousness, we're doing it on the basis of your righteousness that you've given to us. And when we take hold of that imputed righteousness that you've given to us and apply even just a little bit, moment by moment, it's becoming actual elements of righteousness. There's actual, real healing and redemption and glory. Let us long for that, Lord. Teach us to move in that direction for your glory. Amen.